Paul's writing to Christians in Corinth, and he says this, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1. Now, about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to dumb idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one that's given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers, to another, prophecy, to another, distinguishing between spirits, to another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Let's pray, shall we? Verse 3 said, No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ, we declare you as Lord this morning. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to speak to us now as we look at your word. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Someone's not very happy through there, but that's okay. Uh, I'm sure they will be soon. Um, now, um, we have called this uh, sermon series that we started uh, three or four weeks ago before Clapham Sunday. We've called it WDWDWWD. Why do we do what we do? And what we're doing is we are looking at the main sort of elements of um, what happens when we gather like this as a church here at HTC. So my hope and prayer is that actually this sermon series, it's, it's useful for you, whether you've been coming along to this church for decades, or whether last Sunday at Clapham Sunday was the first time you'd ever been in church for decades, that actually it'll be useful as we think about why do we do all the different things that we do as we gather like this. And we began this uh, sermon series a few weeks ago by looking at a verse in Acts, Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. It's going to come up on the screen. And Luke, who wrote Acts, he writes this. He says, uh, of the early church, he says, they devoted themselves, and then he says four things. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, we thought about that, if you can think back two weeks ago, before, just before Clam Sunday, uh, we thought about that. Why, when we gather, do we have Bible teaching? Why do we have Bible teaching as we gather as a church? So that was the first one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That was the very first uh, talk in the series about why, why do we bother gathering at all? Why do we bother gathering to fellowship together? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. So that's thinking about communion, and we're going to be thinking about that next Sunday. And then final one, and to prayer. And that's what we're going to be thinking about today, thinking about prayer. Now, clearly, prayer, it is integral to our personal relationship with God. You or I, as an individual, communicating, talking to God. That's prayer. But the question is, what about when we gather together like this? Not thinking about us as individuals, but as we gather collectively, why do we pray when we gather together? You know, I've heard people say, well, prayer is such a personal thing. Prayer is such a, a private thing that doesn't really need to be any focus at all on praying when we gather together. After all, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father in heaven. 
So prayer, it's such a personal thing. We do it behind closed doors. So why should we pray when we're together? Well, there's no doubt that in the Bible, prayer is seen not just as a private activity, but it is also seen as a public activity. In fact, I would go so far as to say that our public prayer here, it should actually shape and mold our private prayer. So as we pray, as we gather together like this, as we pray together, it teaches us, it informs us, it helps us, it matures us, it motivates us in how we pray when we are in private, by ourselves with God. And as you look at the Bible, there seem to be two forms of prayer that happen when we gather together. There are two forms of prayer, if you like, two directions in prayer. And the first direction is up. So as we gather together, there is prayer up to God. Prayer up to God. So occasionally, what does that look like? Occasionally, that looks like everyone praying out loud together up to God. So in Acts 4 verse 24, it says they raised their voices together in prayer to God. But more often, it's not everyone praying out loud all together at the same time, although that does happen sometimes, but more often, it is one or two people leading the whole congregation in praying up to God, just as Millie did for us uh, just a few moments ago. Now, the Bible gives us a few guidelines on what to pray when we gather together. But actually, in terms of why do we do what we do, in terms of why we pray up to God, well, ultimately, it's because of who God is. Uh, last Wednesday, I went to watch um, Hope, our five-year-old, in her end-of-year um, uh, school play. It was um, Wind in the Willows, and up on the screen is going to come a picture of Hope. She was a frog. Okay, there she is. It's not brilliant. She's next to Michael John's son, Theo, who was also a frog. And so there they are together, uh, Hope and Theo, as frogs. And they were absolutely brilliant, as you can see, for all of the, the two minutes that they were on stage for the entire performance. So, um, but there we go. There were just two minutes. That's fine. I'm not bitter about it. But, um, um, but I, I wonder if you remember Wind in the Willows. And there's a bit in Wind in the Willows where Mole and Rat... Um, they meet a godlike presence. And Mole turns to Rat as they gaze on this so-called deity. And, and Mole says this to Rat, says, Rat, Rat, are you afraid? Are you afraid in the presence of this God? And this is how the story continues. It goes as follows in the book. Afraid, murmured the Rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid? Of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, mole, I am afraid. Then the two animals, crouching to the earth, bowed their heads and did worship. You see, what fuels us to pray is just like what fueled rat and mole to worship. What fuels us to pray, it is not technique, but it is theology. It's not about how to pray, how do you go about doing it. What fuels us is about who we are praying to. You see, Jesus, he may say, when you go pray, go into your room, close the door. But just a few verses later, he's saying, and pray like this. This is how you're to pray. And he prays what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And how does he start the Lord's Prayer? He starts by who we're praying to. And who are we praying to? Our Father in heaven. 
It's not to my Father in heaven. It's not just a personal thing. It is to our Father in heaven. That is why we pray up to God, because of who God is. He is our Father, that intimate, and yet he is in heaven. He is awesome. He is mighty. So that's the first type of prayer that as we gather together, praying up to God. But there's also another type of prayer, if you like, a sort of horizontal prayer rather than vertical prayer. So not so much prayer up to God, but prayer across for others. We pray across for others. And to understand why we do this, what I want us to do is to look at this passage that I read a few moments ago, this passage about spiritual gifts from the Bible reading. And what I want us to do is to try and answer three questions. Three questions about spiritual gifts. So if you're not there, I'd love you to turn back to page 1153. And the first question is that we're going to try and answer about spiritual gifts is this. What are spiritual gifts? Okay? Have a look at verse 1. So bottom of page 1153. Verse 1. Paul says, Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. So the Corinthian Christians, they were uninformed about spiritual gifts. And we too, we do not want to be uninformed about spiritual gifts. So let's get informed. What are they? Well, it might sound obvious, but the most important thing to know about spiritual gifts is that they are gifts. They're gifts. The word that Paul uses for spiritual gifts is the word in Greek, charismata. Charismata. And the root of that word, charismata, is charis, which means grace. Grace or undeserved grace gift. And this passage that that I read a little moment ago, this passage is all about how spiritual gifts, they are given to us by God. They're given. So just look, would you, at verse 7, this idea of them given, these undeserved grace gifts. Verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Or look at verse 8, to one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. So you see, spiritual gifts, they are not so much a mark of our wonderful spirituality. Oh, aren't I so super spiritual and so holy because I've got this spiritual gift? That's the kind of thing that some of the Corinthian Christians were saying. But, But Paul is saying that is completely wrong. Completely wrong. Spiritual gifts, they are a mark of God's wonderful grace. Not a mark of our supposedly wonderful spirituality. But what are these gifts? What are these different various gifts? Well, as you look in verses 7 to 11, there are nine different spiritual gifts listed. At other places, there are others listed. So at the end of the chapter, if you were to just turn over to verses 28 to 30, you'll see there that there are some more uh, gifts listed there in verses 28 to 30. There are three other lists elsewhere in the New Testament of spiritual gifts. And gifts in some of the other lists include the gift of financial giving, the gift of leadership, the gift of showing mercy. So you see, there is huge variety in what these spiritual gifts are. Some of them are more obviously supernatural. Some of them are more obviously supernatural. So things like the gift of miraculous powers or prophecy. Those are mentioned in verse 10, if you look there. Some of the spiritual gifts, they are more natural talents that can be transformed and energized by the Holy Spirit, like the gift of helping people. That is a spiritual gift. Did you know that? The gift of helping people. Look at verse 28 of chapter 12, verse 28, it says the gift of helping. 
Sometimes that's translated the gift of administration. Administration, that is a spiritual gift. And there's no reason that I can see to limit the spiritual gifts to those explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Because each of the four places where the gifts are listed, they are a different list. So each, uh, each of the lists is not meant to be an exhaustive, complete list. So just to give you one example, some people, I think, seem to have a spiritual gift of passionately interceding in prayer for people. But that's not actually listed as a spiritual gift anywhere in the Bible. So if I was trying to define for you what is a spiritual gift, this is the definition I come up with. Uh, A spiritual gift is any God-given ability that a Christian has which is used to build up other believers. That is what a spiritual gift is. Second question. Ask what? What about who? Who has spiritual gifts? Who has spiritual gifts? Have a look at verse 7 again of chapter 12. Do you look at verse 7? He says, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Or look at verse 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Paul is telling us here that all Christians have some spiritual gifts. Each one. No exceptions. Everyone who can say, verse 3, Jesus is Lord. If that is you, you're a Christian and you will have some spiritual gifts. In fact, if you read the rest of chapter 12, Paul goes on and he talks about this, uh, this analogy of the church. The local church is like a human body, he says. The whole church is like a human body, and each one of us, we are like different parts of a body. So if you go down right to the bottom of the page and look at verse 21, look at what he says there. Verse 21, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. He's saying no one can say that they are not valued and important in the church body. There is not a single person here who is not needed. No one here is surplus to requirements. Without you, we would be missing a bit of our body that is Holy Trinity Clapham. And why is that? It is because none of us here have all the spiritual gifts. None of us do. And so we need each other. To have that complete body. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're going, do you know, I don't really know what my spiritual gifts are. I'm not sure I've got any. Jago says that everyone has some spiritual gift. I'm not sure what mine are. Can I say the best thing that you could do is to chat to someone, even at the end of the service, who knows you a little bit and who's part of this church, and ask them, what do you think my spiritual gifts are? See what they say. Because all of us, if we believe Jesus is Lord, we have some spiritual gifts. So three questions we're thinking about. We've had what are spiritual gifts? Um, Who has spiritual gifts? And then the third question, why have spiritual gifts? Why have spiritual gifts? Why do we have them? Have a look at verse 7 of chapter 12 again. It says this. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Why? For the common good. They're given for the common good. That's why. 
And Paul unpacks what he means by that in the following chapters. The whole of chapter 12 to chapter 14, it is a whole section all about spiritual gifts. And a lot of it, Paul is saying, this is why we have spiritual gifts. They're for the common good. Just think about how it goes on. Look at chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13, it is that famous chapter. It's all about love. It's all about love. We hear it in weddings time and time and time again. And actually, it's quite ironic because it's a funny passage to have for a wedding because actually, Paul is giving a critique, a rebuke, a challenge to these Christians in Corinth. He's saying, you may have all these spiritual gifts, but actually, are you using them for the common good? Just look at it. It's such famous words. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. What does he say? He says, if I speak in the tongues, spiritual gift, of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, spiritual gift, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, spiritual gift, and if I have a faith, spiritual gift, that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. Paul is saying, do you see what he's saying? He is saying, you Corinthians, you're getting so overexcited about some sort of particularly miraculous spiritual gifts, but you've got to recognize what is their purpose? Why do we have them? They're for the common good. He's saying you can please Jesus without spiritual gifts, but you cannot please Jesus without love. So he's saying to them, he's saying to each one of us, please use the spiritual gifts that God has given to you, use them in love. Use these spiritual gifts for the common good, not just to build you up and look how impressive I am because I've got these super spiritual gifts. Now, I may say all that, but I do not want you to think that spiritual gifts are not important because spiritual gifts are important. They're very important. I don't know if it strikes you as amazing this, but it certainly struck me as amazing that to a church like Corinth, a church like Corinth, they are full of spiritual gifts, particularly the more spectacular, miraculous ones, but they are misusing those gifts. To a church like Corinth, what would your advice be to them? If I was Paul and I was coming to to, to sort of see the church and I saw them using all these spectacular, miraculous gifts, but using them in completely the wrong way, I would probably go, hang on a moment, guys, let's call a temporary ban on spiritual gifts, the miraculous ones, the spectacular ones. Let's stop them for the moment. Let's have a bit of teaching. Let's have a bit of learning. Let's get a correct understanding of them. And then maybe in the future, then we might start using them again. That's what I would have done. But Paul does completely the opposite. Completely the opposite. Paul, to a church that is aflame in speaking in tongues, but doing it all wrong, doing it selfishly, doing it showing offly, doing it not for the common good, Paul commands them not to ban spiritual gifts, far from it. Paul commands them to seek more spiritual gifts. It's quite surprising, isn't it? Just look at it. Look at chapter 12, verse 31. 12, verse 31, he says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. Look across at chapter 14, verse 1. He says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Go over the page to chapter 14 and verse 39, uh, sort of the, the conclusion to this whole section about spiritual gifts. Chapter 14, verse 39, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. You see, Paul says that the solution to the abuse of spiritual gifts, it's not disuse, but it is correct use. 
It is correct use. But I'd love you to notice this as well, that Paul is challenging the Corinthians to strive for what he calls the greater gifts. He's saying strive for the greater gifts. And what that particularly seems to mean is strive more for prophecy than for the gift of tongues. Now, why is he saying that? Let me first try and just define both of those. Let me define the gift of tongues, first of all. The gift of tongues, it is an ability to pray in a language, a tongue, which you don't understand, which other people don't understand, but which God does, and that tongue expresses your spirit to the Lord. It's sort of a a spiritual prayer language. And some people have the gift of tongues. And then the gift of prophecy, well, as I look at Scripture, I would define prophecy as a a variety of spirit-prompted speaking through which God communicates a particular message to a particular people at a particular time. Now, prophecy, it it doesn't carry the same authority as the Bible. Prophecy, we're told, it needs to be tested. It needs to be weighed against Scripture. So the only place that you or I can be 100% sure that we are hearing the very words of God is in here, is in the Bible. But prophecy is still important. Prophecy is important. It is a greater spiritual gift than tongues, says Paul. Now, why is that? What I'd love you to do is just turn to chapter 14 and verse 1, and I'm just going to read through the first five verses of chapter 14, starting at verse 1, just so we can see why does Paul say that prophecy is more important, is a greater gift than tongues. Chapter 14, verse 1, says this. He says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Now, why especially? Why should one gift somehow be greater than the other? Well, let's look. Verse 2. Verse 2, he says, For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. So in other words, what he's saying there is he's saying that the person who speaks in tongues, they they don't help anybody else in the church gathering, just themselves. They are edified, they're built up, but no one else is built up and edified because no one understands what they're saying. But, verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue, here he says it, edifies themselves. But the one who prophesies edifies the church because prophecy it can be understood by others. So other people are built up. Verse 5. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. So Paul is not knocking the gift of tongues itself, saying it's a really helpful gift to have. And for some people have it in their prayer lives, their private prayer up to God lives, it is a real help. So I'd like every one of you to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. Why? Because the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. So I hope you see with that, that you see there the fundamental purpose of spiritual gifts. He's saying to edify other people, to build up other people in the church, to bless other people, to build up Christians. Exactly the same what we saw in chapter 12, verse 7. Remember that verse. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Why? For the common good. 
so that we collectively can build one another up, edify one another, so that we might be more like Jesus. Now, in light of all that, in light of all that about spiritual gifts, I hope you can see why we have prayer across for others at HTC, what we often call prayer ministry. It is our way of practically enabling us to use all our different spiritual gifts for the common good, to build each other up, to edify each other. You see, different churches will do it slightly differently. Currently, what we do is we get the hosting team, we get connect group leaders, we get people that have been through our prayer ministry training course to be the people that are praying so that there is consistency in the prayer. But the overall framework that we have here as we gather, why do we do prayer ministry? The overall framework is this. We need to look to allow enough freedom and enough spontaneity for the use of spiritual gifts, including the more supernatural ones. So there's enough freedom for people to pray for physical healing for other people. So that people can pray in prophetic words for people that they feel that God might be giving them. So that we have enough freedom to do that but also that we have enough structure and organization. Because as Paul, as he concludes this whole section, chapter 14, verse 40, he says, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I hope you see that. That is the kind of thing we're trying to work with, a structure that has enough freedom, but that there is structure as well. And above all, what I want to emphasize is that we as a church, we want to be marked by both the Word and the Spirit. We want to be marked by both word and spirit, but please note this. In a church service, it is not, first of all, we have the word during the Bible teaching, and then we have the spirit during the prayer ministry. That is not what it is. It is, first of all, we have word and spirit together in the Bible teaching. As we teach the Bible, God's spirit is at work as we are having that. And then we go to the prayer ministry, and again, it is word and spirit working together. Working together, we're applying God's word into our lives as we pray for one another, and we're praying for one another to be edified and built up as we operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Word and Spirit together in both the preaching and the prayer ministry. Now, some churches don't have any prayer ministry time after their sermon at all. Just sort of finish the sermon, 10-second prayer, one song, and everyone's talking about what's happening in the cricket after that. Now, that is a tragedy Because the time after the preaching, it is the perfect opportunity for the word to be prayed in. For us to ask the Holy Spirit to continue to be at work in power amongst us as we pray across for each other. So that each one of us, that we might grow more like Christ. So that the power of sin in our lives might be broken. So that the power of the Spirit in our lives might become more evident. And so as I close, if you are here today and you are someone who would call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, by definition, you are someone who wants to be built up. You're someone who wants to be edified, who wants to be more like Jesus. And if you want that, and yet you hardly ever go to receive prayer ministry, maybe you haven't been up to receive prayer ministry in the last few months, can I, with all due respect, say that you are being foolish. You're being foolish. There may be all sorts of reasons to give as why we haven't been on the receiving end of prayer. All sorts of reasons, you know, oh, I've got to go and pick up the children in five minutes' time, so I can't be prayed for. 
It's awkward pushing past people in the pew, so I can't be prayed for. Uh, People will think I've committed some grievous sin if they see me being prayed for, and that would be a bit embarrassing. I'm a leader. I'm ordained. I'm a vicar. I can't possibly be prayed for. It's, It's only weak people who go for prayer. The prayer probably won't make much difference, so why bother? I've got smelly breath, and it might be a bit embarrassing. I don't quite like the look of the people on the prayer ministry team this week. None of those are good reasons. In fact, all of them are terrible reasons. Now, of course, there will be some weeks when we feel that it is more relevant for us to receive prayer, and other weeks where we feel it's less relevant. But the bottom line is this, the only reason to consistently not go forwards for prayer is because you don't want to be edified, because you don't want to be built up in your faith as people pray across for you using their God-given spiritual gifts. And personally, personally, I don't know about you, but personally, I do want to be edified. I do want to be built up. And personally, I don't know about you, but I do need that big time. I need to become more like Jesus. And personally, I don't know about you, but personally, I am going to ask to receive prayer today. Should we stand? Let's stand. We're going to come now to our prayer ministry time. It's a time when some of us will be just saying the right thing for me to respond is to just respond in sung worship as I sing praise to God and thank him for all that he has given me. But it is, as I say, it's also a time to receive prayer. And so I want to say this. If you feel in need of your faith being built up, if you want to be edified today, would you come forward to be prayed for. If you have an ailment that you'd like to receive prayer for healing for today, we'd love to pray for you. We cannot guarantee healing, but we can pray to our all-powerful Father in heaven and ask him if he would heal us. doesn't matter what it is, slip disc, slip disc, root canal teeth, whatever it might be. If you would like prayer for healing, we'd love to pray for you today. Can I say, if you've come to faith recently, or if you've come back to faith recently, maybe you came up for prayer last week at Clapham Sunday, we would love to pray for you today. If you know know you are someone who has had a wrong view of prayer ministry, if you know you're someone who has had a wrong view of spiritual gifts, you've been fearful of them, uh, you've said, oh, I don't have any, or or maybe the other way, like the Corinthians, you've been proud and going, I'm super spiritual because I've got this gift. We would love to pray for you today. If there's any other reason that you would like prayer today, we would love to pray for you. So I'd love now the hosting team to come forward who are going to be part of praying. Uh, Maybe a few connect group leaders and some people who've done the prayer ministry course. Just a few people to come forward. And if you would like prayer now, even if it's awkward pushing people past the pews, I'd love you to just push past the pew now if you would like to be prayed for today. Just come forward as um, some people come forward to pray and some people come forward to be prayed for. Just come forward. Uh, right now, if you would like prayer.